Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. I said to Rhonda, it's always grossly embarrassing sitting there listening to these people talking about you. She said, oh, that's, you know, that's just classic sort of knocking yourself down. And it isn't, because you sort of listen to this and you think there's so many things out there that are happening and should be happening. And I suppose I sort of feel that the that sort of putting you up as a sort of as, as, as a leader in that sort of sense sits somewhat uncomfortably. But I am going to try and do something now, which I suspect is falls into that leadership thing. Because I'm going to try and challenge people here, and I need your help to make what I want happen. It means you may have to want it too. And this is thinking about the future. And I think Eloise started by talking about imagines if, and I think this whole thing is about there, imagine if we did manage to move forward. One of the things that sort of has been bugging me for quite some time, and I'm going to do something I usually don't do and read this because I've actually packed a tight argument in it, so you're going to have to listen carefully and then you can download it at some later stage, is to try and think through what we want. And I just tried it on our American visitors to say, you know, who gives you an image of the future we want? It's actually very hard. There's very few people now on, if you like, the more progressive end that are prepared to sort of sit down and make a future. So what I want to do today is give you some images, and it really took me, it was really hard for me to think this through. I mean, usually I just get up and go burble at a conference. But I thought I'd better sit down and work out what future I wanted. And to some degree, I went back to the boyers. I don't agree, Ron, I don't, I, I don't know whether they'd have to be rewritten, because I think they still count, because nothing happened, unfortunately, a few months after. <laughs> I delivered them, we ended up with a less civil society, so a truly civil society wasn't even on the cards. So what future do we want? I've said this, can we make ethical, equitable and exciting futures? And this is a real question, because we don't talk about equity and, you know, in that, in that real sense. We don't talk about ethics in that sense about what we want for the future. We criticise things. So I'm assuming people are here because they want to make better societies and to explore some of the options. Most of us do want to make a positive difference and make changes for others, even if things are good for us. And I think that's one of the important things we've got to recognise. It came up a couple of times earlier. That for most Australians, life is relatively comfortable. But there's an awful lot of things that make us uncomfortable. Many of us are worried about keeping some of the things that we have got over the last few decades, some of the reforms that were mentioned earlier. My worry is that the pace of such gains, all those lovely reforms that they had up on that thing, has stopped. In fact, it's starting to go backwards. So how do we recreate optimism? And I think optimism is actually incredibly important, and I think it's one of the things we need as a community uh, conference to think about. Because sometimes it's easy to sort of fall into pessimism. It's easy to fall into, ain't it awful? You know, the sky is falling in, the world is falling apart. And what that does is it makes a, a lot of people feel powerless. Because if the world is so bad, they can't do anything about it. So you might as well sort of forget that and go and dig your garden. And I think we've just got to be fairly careful that we do try and keep, move away from the possible whinging into the idea of there are futures that we can do and they're accessible. Now, quite like their Louise 10%, only I'm the big picture board. I want to go for 100%. <laughs> And I know it's slow process. 
But I think to do that, we've got to change our mindsets. So how do we recreate the optimism that drove those changes and follow up continuing and newer inequities and possibilities? We need to start with a wider vision of the future to work on and find some common goals, some ways of moving out of the anxieties and feeding of despair that lock a lot of people into doing nothing or too little. So let's start thinking about the idea of utopia, the ideal society we'd like to live in and leave our kids. Firstly, and this is important, let's put the social, i.e. interrelating people at the core of our future society and focus on more than the economy and material well-being. We can redefine our goals as people-oriented and social well-being, which relate to how we do things as much as what we do. And that's really important because very often, particularly these days where you've got to deal with key performance indicators and outcomes and outputs, it's the concrete that you come up with, not relationships and not the way we do things. We, um, I'm suggesting we make things better incrementally rather than creating a grand socialist or even market-driven dream palace. So my utopia is a roadmap for moving on and exploring what we need to do to ensure that life is better. So I'm not saying that's the end point, I'm saying this is the way we go. And I think this is what I'd like to see people adopt. You know, what are the next stops along that particular road? What are the indicators? To feel able to move on, and this is interesting, somebody else used the same image, you need the concept of the light and the hill, which I think came up in, in one of the earlier speakers' thing, because if you don't have some image that there's a future, you're not going to keep moving. And I always take the idea of Oscar Wilde, who described utopia as always the next island to the one you've just arrived on, so it's the idea of the elusive light on the hill. It's, yeah. Roadmaps need some signposts of how we can move on to more civil society. So I'm suggesting the first starting points for moving the shared purpose. And this list took me ages to think about. One, and the order's not particularly important, fairness and equity, because it creates social cohesion based on the mutual recognition of rights to treat each other well rather than fear others. If we do mean things to people, we get frightened of them. And if we have mean things done to us, we get angry. So the more we can avoid doing those things to groups, the less likely we are to be fearful. Collaboration, cooperation, collectivity. We need to put those back on the agenda and not sort of things sometimes the Commonwealth calls collaboration and cooperation. Social communal connections and the maintenance of mutual trust balance individualism and competition. I'm not saying get rid of individualism and competition. You can't. But it needs to be balanced by the concept of mutuality and reciprocity. Then you can actually end up with a reasonably civil society. Diversity and pluralism. Differences make for creativity, while uniformity and conformity stifle imagination and variations. Complexity, conflict and tension. Society needs to deal with these civilly to generate the necessary discussion, dissent, options and solutions. Let's not be frightened of conflict and argument. I think sometimes the sector gets very worried by it. Let's use it as a way of opening up questions. Generosity and altruism. Now, it's very interesting. I mean, you talk to economists and they say they can't deal with altruism. It's an externality. It just doesn't work in their particular way of seeing things, except now we've got behavioural economics. Maybe they can work it out. Because it gives us the pleasure of sharing and giving are crucial to our sense of commonalities in the non-commercial relationships. And I think that's a very important one for this sector because I think quite often it's sort of got too much, it's trying to be too business oriented and too much into the things. I think that whole concept of gift and giving and generosity is really important. Rewards and recognition. We do need to recognise that people do things and we do need to acknowledge what they do. Dignity and belonging. 
Being accepted and ex respected for whom we are is really crucial, and we've got to think about how many groups we take dignity away from in many cases. Trust and trustworthiness, this goes back to the Boyer lectures. Ethical practices, doing the right thing. If you think most other people are going to do the right thing or try and do the right thing, you will trust them and find them trustworthy. If you assume most people are going to rip you off, you will not trust them. Or you might only trust them in a very minimal way, but you don't see them as trustworthy, which is the whole thing about that. And it's really hard working with people you don't trust. Rules and law enforcement is important, but it should be the last step and not the first. In other words, people should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because somebody's waving a police banner at them or something of that sort. So that was my first attempt at a list of what I think some of the crucial sort of signposts will be. It's about the good society based on us being interdependent and valuing ourselves as linked to other people. The big question is who we see meriting our trust and being part of our society. And there's a whole lot of polls that say people are really anxious about things like sense of inequality, distrust of many institutions like politicians and big business, fear of crime, even when there is no increase in crime, which is a really interesting one. There's no relationship between people's anxieties about crime and the actual crime rates of an area. I think it relates more to the hours of television watching once they showed. Um, and we've got a generally lower trust of strangers. How did that start? How do we put the fragments back together? What's changed over time to make us feel much less connected in some wider sense? One big change, and this is, I think, really important, this is why I'm coming back to something, is the disappearing public sector. After many centuries of expectation of progress and growing government intervention and sharing risks, remember that term, we move back into, at least at the rhetorical level, assumptions about individual self-sufficiency. They sit really oddly with us. So all this thing about shifting risk from individuals. We've lost our sense of... Our, uh, local belonging and being part of rich traditions and cultures over this time. But we're likely also to recognise the universality of societies, our common humanity and relationships with different people. So progress has given us this sense of being part of a broader community. So, but still it has left us feeling with the disappearing public sector and the disappearing local connections, it's left a lot of people feeling, is it just up to me? You know, am, am I carrying the entire risk apart from that? One result is a sense of fear that we've lost the secular, democratic, egalitarian assumptions that were part of a century plus of expecting the public sector, the public sphere, to join us together through institutions, schools, healthcare, and so on. We've got fewer such symbols in our community because we flogged the family silver. And while it mightn't be as symbolically important to the rich, public spaces, publicly owned services, public schools, public hospitals, sporting facilities, libraries, owned by all of us, were seen as something we could use as a right, not as a privilege. And it was a really important part of, of, of being part of a society, even if you didn't make use of those particular services. So maybe privatised and subcontracted services are more efficient, but that's not always clear. But they don't identify what they offer as public. You know, they might have the Commonwealth crown on it somewhere. People are encouraged not to expect to be publicly served, but to see themselves as self-reliant, carrying their own risks. The public sphere has been redefined as a somewhat inadequate safety net rather than a part of what ties us together. These are neoliberal con concepts that also redefine the public and private spheres. So relationships, emotions, care and nurture, which are all the things that are really important to us, were either ignored or commodified. In short, too much emphasis on market forces overwhelmed the importance of human relationships. And that's a really important thing to remember because we've, we haven't recovered from that. 
These disconnects make people feel fearful and less generous and more self-interested. Those who feel dis disengaged, disrupted and perturbed may feel the only safe place is their home and the people that they're familiar with. The rise of authoritarian neoconservative politics and of fundamentalist religions and of forms of nationalism can be seen as reactions to too much uncertainty and individualised perceived risks and freedom that have created rifts between us locally and broadly. So I suppose this is where I start trying to think, where do we go from here, having defined the problem? We need to recreate a sense of connectedness and mutuality we had before. Collectivity, belonging and interdependence were conceptually overridden by consumerism. We need ways to reconnect widely so we can have the goodwill necessary to create inclusive, equitable societies. This conference is about communities in control, presumably of our own destinies. So I want to start by actually looking at what happens here. What are the possible roles of community groups? I sat down and I wrote a long list, and I won't read them all out, of what's good about community groups, participatory, democratic, local need, flexible, advocates for needs, including uh, unpopular ones, create trust, innovative, fill gaps, share skills, provide forums for ideas, give space to people, etc., etc., etc and finished off with voluntary and by its nature selective of those who have an interest in being there. Now, all of those things are pluses, and they're all the pluses I want to make use of, I want us to make use of in the broad sense, but there's minuses. A lot of community groups they can be controlled by factions and fractions. They can represent particular interest groups at the expense of others. They can enforce the way we do things around here on new members, they can exercise power for its own sake, they can exclude new ideas and troublemakers, they can patronise the powerless, chase resources rather than meeting members' needs, act like a business to the detriment of service and local needs, be co-opted by too many government contracts or tied donations, act as social control agents for government and power groups and follow passions that mightn't be for the public benefit. Because they're voluntary, it's very hard to actually demand any overall accountability apart from when you get this money. These flaws, I think, and I'm saying putting this up knowing that this is a communities and control conference, make it impossible to generalise about the sector or make any clear statements about its role as a sector. It's too varied and vulnerable to be effective as the primary deliverer of universal services that people have as a right. Now, this is important because people at the moment, there's a few groups around that are saying things like, just devolve all the money to the community sector. Government shouldn't be doing any of this sort of stuff and we'll handle it and we'll do it fine. I'm saying I think that that's really a very scary possibility because its strength uh, is its diversity and its interests and its weak, these will become its weaknesses if they are all co-opted into the delivery of services. It needs to be independent of government but it also means that there should be two discrete sectors with quite different roles. Government isn't a good initiator of ideas. This role is often performed by the community sector and many in the sector who care about more civil societies could be effective participants in a futures development program. We need to think about what government does and that's what I'm asking people to do. What sort of government services and what should governments <coughs> deliver and what should we be doing? They're not going to think about it. That's not their role. Government is there to respond. It's our role as community sector people to start drawing some of the boundaries about what is a public service which people are entitled to, what is something which is appropriately delivered in the community and how do we actually identify those particular things. Let's start with a new vision of the public sphere. My road to utopia is publicly paved 
and it clearly symbolises the need for a common way to move forward open to all. We need to think through what should be publicly owned for practical and symbolic reasons rather than the present confusion between spheres. We need to articulate some clear boundaries between the roles of the public sphere, the commercial sphere and the third sector. And I know this gets, uh, goes against some of the partnerships and collaborations and so on, but it often on involves compromises of power and shifts which deprive the public of both the right to know who to deliver, who delivers service and the necessary role of advocacy. I have never seen this sector so silent at its peak things about any sort of advocacy for anything new. A lot of whinging, but no real attempts to come up with alternatives. And I've said this, I said this at an ACOS Congress and they've stopped inviting me to talk to them. <laughs> Um, so I want to reinvent the idea of the public sector in a way that serves our needs as community members, not our needs necessarily just as, as managers of, you know, as, as people working in the sector. The past decade has seen some interesting positive changes in the business sector, but not, not so interesting changes in the not-for-profit categories because so many large agencies have taken on government functions and outdated corporate cultures. Actually, you find more discussion about ethics and social responsibility in the corporates than you do in, in some of the very large agencies. So a few of them have now started moving to look at corporate social responsibility. The NGO sector needs to look at its own functioning because it's been seduced into taking contracts which undermine its independence and ability to advocate. The sector has, the last few years, has muddied the divisions between the sectors, so nobody's really quite sure who does what. So we need a three-pronged reform tactics. New style government services that are responsive, accountable and flexible, but still offer entitlements that are legislatively, politically driven and part of the public sphere. The state, in the broad sense, is necessary as a direct service provider to create the level of security of shared risk that underpin the frameworks of a more trustworthy society. If you know the state is there as a universal provider, it takes off some of the strain that's been dumped back on people to save, you know, private health insurance, private schooling, you know, superannuation, all of those things that get dumped back on us as individuals don't fall through the safety net. It's not a good place to be. People need to be linked through recognising citizenship as requiring both common entitlements and obligations offered by those we elect to service. We need an expanded role for business as responsible corporate citizens who create value for the broader community, its workers and the environment as well as its shareholders, and that's that triple bottom, bottom line stuff which is happening. And a vigorous independent community sector which is both vigilant guardian of and advocate for social equity as well as ensuring that state and business do the right thing by society at large. So I'm saying let's be very clear that we are there as the sort of, if you like, the conscience of the sectors. And if we don't do it, nobody else will. And out of that, we need to talk about how we can do things in cultural, education, a lively, responsive market sector, connecting people up through technological means so that we can use the whole technology to do things and make environmentally sustainable communities. And we can achieve that if we've got three sectors working not collaboratively to the point where any of them is silenced, but, but in, the, in a whole sort of debating, active way, and that's what we have to go to. So where do we go from here? How do we start such a project? It's hard to identify the source for developing future-oriented discussions at the moment. The universities, and I know I work at one, have vacated the role of public intellectual hothouses. The existing think tanks are lim limited mostly, both in the range and adhere to particular politics. While some are doing interesting work, they're not making much ongoing impact on the broad debates, apart from the odd one like the IPA that the government loves. At the moment, I can't see either the state 
or the business sector taking up these issues, nor at the moment can I see any of the NGO peaks moving on them either. So maybe this type of initiative also shouldn't be based in any one sector because it's about all our futures and not the future of just one sector. Therefore, we should be looking for a new type of structure and ways of operating that could model the vision of the future above. We need new types of social coalitions and collaborations that can work cooperatively towards some common goals. We don't need to agree on everything. I just wrote a paper for uh, uh, criticising a program and said basically what you need is common goals. You don't always have to get there the same way. You don't always have to do that. You have to, to get there in ways that are sort of you know, ethical or whatever. But we don't have to agree on things. Sometimes we want agreement all the way down the line. Um, we need to work out ways of linking many existing groups and the good local, regional, national and international initiatives that are already happening in collaborative clusters. The question is whether these can rise, and that means not having... You now, somebody said, well, what about this conference? And I said, look, conferences are a bit like what I call one-night stands. You know, you have a U-butte time for a very short period and then you say bye-bye and things stop. We need... I'm not going to say marriage. Ongoing partnerships. <laughs> Um, it's a question, the question is whether we, these sort of collaborations can rise above sectoral interests and find ways of working together that don't destroy our independence and separate voices, and that's really the key to this. This requires a funding base that has no strings attached by the donors apart from a commitment to a common goal, and that's really hard. There's a whole lot of agencies in this sector that are making big bickies. You've only got to look at the Therese Rain story to realise that the employment agencies in the sector are actually making a motto out of a lot of the services that they're doing. I think we need to talk to business also about ways and means of setting up donations which are string-free, in a sense, because very often you end up tailoring what you're doing to, what the, you know, to the guidelines. I know that you print out the things and you echo all the words in the guidelines, back to the person, get the money out of it, but it does mean you haven't got the freedom necessarily to pursue things that might be uncomfortable for that agency as well. Um, so we need a linked group that would create and resource, and I'm not saying don't duplicate what they're doing, broad public debates and the futures people would like to see and promote the necessity and criteria for more civil societies. Let's talk positively about the future we want. Nobody's doing that at the moment. It needs to support the positives and counter some of the widespread assumptions that are undermining the institutional changes that are needed to create less anxious and much more generous societies. The challenge is to offer excitement of a broad-based ideas for better futures, for social systems that would offer more truly civil societies. The high ground visions of change that were once powerful, and they were the things that Jack and I were very much part of, the 1960s and 70s was a very optimistic time. We thought we could fix the world. Have, have disappeared and it's much harder to get moving until we get that. So we need new and exciting ways of moving forward. So I came up with a few tasks because I always thought that's a good start. I thought start, start a foundation of ideas for an equitable future, which came up as FIEF. And then I called, said, said okay, fiefdom. Then I looked it up on, on uh, the Wikipedia and it said feudal sort of control of areas. So I thought maybe we'll call it fiefdom, put D-E-M instead of D-O-M, so we'll move out of the dominance and get back to the democratic <laughs> and set ourselves up something. But something which can pull together a discussions about how do we create a fairer future? Because most of the economic debates we have at the moment, fairness is trickle-down theory at best. It collects and disseminates ideas for making a better future and how to do this. This requires independent funding. Use this type of structure for advocating, collating, promoting, and where necessary, researching issues around equity. 
and make sure it's not beholden to government or business. Establish gaps in the present research, which is too often being limited by being commercially or government funded, such as shared risks. Who's doing research on how we feel about risks being dumped on us? Who's actually doing research on the level of anxieties that people have in the current uh, community? Um, in relation to the public services and in the virtues of NGOs, the other piece of research I find very bizarre that it's not there is who does research on NGOs to say, what do we do extraordinarily well? Because a lot of NGOs get business and some of the sort of heavies around government telling you to run yourself like a business. And yet there's things that NGOs have done and done for a long time, which they sort of half know they do better, but nobody's articulated it. I mean, I found this particularly, I was looking at people were carrying on about, you know, why should childcare be run by commercial organisations? I said, well, who's looked at what, whether community-based childcare, what advantages it offers? Nobody has. And it's right across the sector. So I think it's about time that as a sector, we just took a long look at ourselves, particularly the people that, I, that care about this, to decide what we do do well and what other people don't do as well and what we can teach them because we've not done it. And that's partly because nobody's actually prepared to put money into telling us how good we are, only how bad we are. Um, so there's a couple of sort of ideas and create goodwill and optimism by expanding trustworthiness and equity. I think we need to start talking about trust and trustworthiness, not in the way that Howard's done it today. Trust me, I'll fix it all. But genuine trustworthiness. And I think people, you know, that issue about being seen as doing the right thing and understanding what it means in a very much broader sense so that we can actually move on. And that gets back to the idea of optimism. Because optimism comes from a sense that you actually trust other human beings. If you distrust other human beings, you're likely to be pessimistic about outcomes. And particularly given the fact that we live with uncertainty, uncertainty seems to need optimism and a sense of trust to deal with. Otherwise, we do become self-engaged or sort of retreat to the small things of the familiar. It's a long-term project, but maybe out of today we can find some starting points. There are many good things happening out there, and I'm sure there are many in this room. Too few attempts to link this up and make sense of them and why they work. Even fewer are the attempts to collate and promote any systematic way, in any systematic way, the communal collective viewpoints and knowledge that we've gained over the past. Rather than nostalgia and attempts to move backwards, which lots of people are sort of banging on about, we need new ideas of social competence and more civil society to counter the negatives of the main political viewpoints, particularly all the economistic stuff that we've been having shoved down our throats for a long time. On the eve of a federal election, we can see the limits of political perceptions and the lack of focus on what makes people feel good and do the right thing by others. Neither party is coming up with enough of this stuff to make anybody feel comfortable about it. It needs changing. And maybe, hopefully, out of these two days, we can kickstart the project. And my final question down here is, if we don't do it, who will? Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.